quick question for you. Have you ever had the feeling that you are exactly where you're supposed to be in life, doing exactly what you were meant to be doing with your skills and your talents? Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Every week we interview women who are generously sharing their stories. And when they do, they give us all a roadmap toward our own success. In the spotlight, an obstetrician, gynecologist, and medical geneticist. She's exactly where she should be. And in this interview, she'll explain how she knows that's true. I started out by asking the doctor where her first name came from. Was she born in Dallas, Texas? I was actually born in upstate New York. We happened to move to Plano, which is the biggest suburb of Dallas, when I was four. And I stayed there all through high school and only left when I went away to college. So the story I tell is that my grandmother, my mom's mom, would always predict if the babies were going to be boys or girls. My mom's the youngest in her family. My grandmother was always right. And then with (laughs) me, she said I was going to be a boy. And I popped out and I was a girl. So at that point, they had already picked a name. The name was Dallas. And my mom said, we're just going to keep it. And then we just happened to move. It was just like the strangest coincidence. Your specialties are obstetrics, gynecology. You are also a medical geneticist. When you were growing up, Dallas, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Did you have a dream? I didn't think I did until I moved from New York, where I did my fellowship back here to Boston. And my mom had moved houses, and she sent me a whole bunch of stuff from when I was a kid that she didn't need because she was moving. And I found one of those things that you do when you're like in preschool that says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it said I wanted to be a doctor. And I really had no idea that at that early age, I wanted to be a doctor. But when I was in first grade, my mom had a baby with a genetic condition. And my little brother was born with a lot of issues. And it, it took a little while to figure out what was going on with him. And he lived for four months, which was much longer than expected. But That was a very life-changing experience and very formative experience that got me to be exactly where I am in the place where I can be that doctor that families like our family needed. Isn't it amazing how life comes full circle like that? His birthday was October 1st, so every October 1st, it all just is like you were like the reason that I became what I am now. Paint us a picture of what it was like for you to grow up in Plano, Texas. It's like an upper-middle-class neighborhood north of Dallas. The schools are massive. My high school had 1,100 people that graduated in my graduating class. So I have a mixed racial background. My dad was black. My mom's white. And so there wasn't a lot of kids like us in our high school. I was also in sort of like the gifted and talented classes, and so was usually one of the few black kids in one of those types of classes. I think I hung out with the black kids when I was in my free time. And then when I was in my what I call nerd classes, I was one of the few black kids. I always felt like sometimes in the white spaces, I was the black kid. And in the black spaces, I was the white kid. And I think that's just how I felt about myself. I don't think other people looked at me that way. You made a decision to go to Dillard Mm -hmm. University in New Orleans, where you were a bio major. Talk to me a little bit about your college experience. I had a really interesting college experience, different than most people. So I decided to go to New Orleans, a city I've never been to, the most unique city you can imagine. Did I feel you like fall in love because you either love it or you don't? I loved it for what it was for the time I was there. I feel like when you get to New Orleans, it's like landing on another planet. It's a completely different experience than any other. And I've lived in lots of like iconic cities. And so it's a very interesting experience. But I only was there for two years, despite the fact that I graduated from there because I went away to London for a year and then I came up here to Boston for a year. So 
I was really about my business while I was there. A little bit of Mardi Gras celebrating, but really was very focused. You were just mentioning London. So you received a very prestigious scholarship as an undergrad, and you were able to travel abroad to King's College in London. It was a really interesting experience and actually one I almost passed up because one of my mentors said, you need to apply for this. And I said, I want to study abroad, but I want to go to a Spanish-speaking country because I wanted to become more fluent in Spanish. He's like, you need to apply for this. And I didn't really want to go to England. I'm like, it's just a bunch of white people. Like, I want to kind of mix it up. I mean, how ridiculous was that? I was going to London. London, it's so diverse and so much going on there. And I actually picked King's College just a fluke, really. As part of the application, I had to actually say what school I wanted to go to and why. I'm like, what do I know about the UK? Because you could go anywhere you wanted. And I was thinking of genetics. That's actually where I started to decide what I wanted to do with my life and started to understand how I could fit genetics into a clinical career. I didn't think I wanted to be a researcher. So how could I make it a clinical career? And that's where all of that happened, is in that application process. And I picked King's College because Watson and Crick, who started the conversation about DNA, were there. So that's why I picked there, and it was a great experience. So you come to Boston to become part of Boston University School of Medicine Early Medical School Selection Program. I don't think that title is long enough. (laughs) What was your first impression of Boston? Wow, I've been here a long time now, so it's hard to think about what my first impression was. Sort of like the impression I had of all of these other iconic cities. I lived in New Orleans, London, New York. How did I get here? Who would have ever thought (laughs) I would have come here to learn and now live? I mean, I still say that to myself. Who would have ever thought? The girl from Plano, Texas. The girl from Plano, Texas. How did she get up here? You matriculated to medical school right after your graduation. What was your mindset in medical school? I'm going to guess that you were pretty focused because you appear to me to be somebody who's always got a direction. That is true. Med school's tough. The nice thing about this early medical school selection program, or EMSSP is what we call it for short, a program I'm still very involved with, is that it's meant to help students who are at historically black colleges transition into medical school with a little bit of a slower transition to allow you to just acclimate better to Boston, to Boston University, and to medical school. And so My mindset was just like, make it, just get through. (laughs) Put one foot in front of the other, Yeah, just get through. So let's go to your OBGYN residency in my home state in Connecticut, Bridgeport Hospital, Yale New Haven Health. What was it about OBGYN that called to you? In medical school, you have the opportunity to be exposed to many of the specialties, especially the big specialties. And the thing about OBGYN was you go to the postpartum floor and it's a happy place. There aren't really sick people there. When you get into it, you realize there are some sick moms and sick babies. But as a medical student, it's a happy place and you're taking care of mostly healthy people. And I liked that. I liked that feeling. There's also nothing more amazing than delivering a baby. I mean, I say... One second before there's not a life in the world and the next second there is and you get to be a part of that. And it's so exciting. There's no other job like it. Medical genetics at Mount Sinai in New York City. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that medical genetics is a very male specialty. Is that true? It's a very small specialty. I don't know the actual breakdown, but a lot of the people that become geneticists are pediatrics trained. And a lot of pediatricians are women. So it may be more mixed than we think. Certainly the older crew were were male, as were most physicians. 
You must have liked Boston because this long <laughs> road brought you all the way back to Tufts Medical Center where you wear a lot of hats, Dallas. Tell us a little bit about your job. I think it's a place where that theme of being one of the only popped up again. So I came to Tufts and actually the job I have was not a job that was there before. So the job was essentially created for me because I had these dual interests in OBGYN and, and medical genetics. And so I'm the division chief of genetics, which is in the Department of Pediatrics at Tufts Children's Hospital. I'm also a general obstetrician gynecologist and the director of our perinatal genetics at Tufts Medical Center. And what does this job entail? I, I run our division of genetics. I see pregnant patients in OBGYN. I supervise and sort of act as a consultant to our maternal fetal medicine specialists and genetic counselors that are on the prenatal genetic side of things. And sort of anything genetics in the hospital, I'm the go-to person. You're also the assistant professor of OBGYN at Tufts University School of Medicine yes. in your spare time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Let's talk about the inequities in healthcare for sure. women of color. What have you observed in your work? I think I've observed what a lot of OBGYNs have observed and physicians have observed in that, you know, we know that the patients are not all getting the same level of care and there's lots of layers to why that's happening. I know that I'm the only black physician in our practice and there are definitely black patients that seek me out. They look on the website, they come to me, particularly because they think I appear to be somebody that's African-American. And when they come into the office you know, there are times that they trust me more than they trust someone else purely because of that connection that they hope that we're going to have. And, you know, that's why we need more diversity in medicine and diversity in our hospitals. We need things to be more welcoming for our patients, just the, what the walls appear like in our waiting rooms. I mean, there's so much work to be done. It's impossible in this time to even get into the depth of it. But even in Boston, a place that has a lot of healthcare exposure. There's how many hospitals here, how many academic medical centers here, but there are still large groups of people that are underserved, which is a real problem. You also have a passion for providing sensitive and culturally competent care to women and families during pregnancy. The mortality rate for black and brown mothers and their babies is high. Why is this? Wow. It's it's a really uh, layered issue there are just the inequities that are in our healthcare system, just the systemic racism that's present, and it infiltrates everything, right? Not just medicine, but our housing, our transportation, our, you know, food insecurity, all of these things. It, it infuses it into all of that. And so to sort of put your finger and point it to one thing is really, really hard to do. But it starts from really there being this just unequal baseline that everybody is starting from, and that starts to add up over time into these other inequities. And I, I think it's important, you know, we've talked a lot over the last year in particular in the United States, you know, after the murder of George Floyd and how we've seen how COVID has affected different groups of people about racism. And, you know, I think a lot of people think of racism as something that someone's doing to somebody personally, that someone's being racist to someone. And although that is present, that's not really what's happening in healthcare that's making these inequities. It's the systemic issues that the system was set up to be this way. The system was set up to treat some people better than other people. And so that's a hard thing to tackle. And we're trying to do that at Tufts. We're trying to do that in OBGYN, um, but it's a hard thing to tackle. You are an inaugural member of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee at Tufts. What is your charge? What's your mission? 
We have multiple missions, and the first was to advocate for a chief diversity officer for the institution, because it's not something that a group of physicians that are well-intentioned can certainly make all of the institutional change that needs to happen. So that was our first charge, and we were successful in doing that. Someone was hired last December. But going forward, it's about sort of working on our recruitment efforts and how do we make this pipeline more diverse for uh, physicians coming into Tufts? How do we retain our own diverse trainees? How do we educate the community of providers and staff members at our hospital about different diverse groups? And how do we make it a safe and friendly place for our patients? You bring babies into the world and you just had one. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Were you a good patient or do you know too much? (laughs) And the irony of all of this is you delivered a child early. You had a preemie. Talk to me about the experience. I think I was a good patient. You'd have to talk to my doctor to or my husband really to know. But I did try to separate it as much as possible. I know way too much being an OBGYN and being a geneticist. You know, I tell my patients I see all the wrong that can happen It's very hard to stay in the most positive of spaces when you're worried that something bad is going to happen to your baby. I think it's just hard to not go there. But I think I did as (laughs) good of a job as I possibly could to, to stay positive. And thankfully, things were going really, really well until I went into labor prematurely. And I say it's a it's actually a blessing. I was at work when it happened. And everything went very, very quickly. And my baby was born at my hospital where I work with all the people around me that I already know. I mean, from the bottom to the top, I know everyone. I'm also one of the only physicians in my hospital that so intimately knows OBGYN, the nurses, the floors, the social workers, and also the NICU teams. Because with genetics, I do a lot of consults in the NICU. None of my OBGYN partners have that advantage. They kind of know people, but I know them very, very well because I'm in the NICU constantly. And so, you know, I felt like my baby was like a VIP. I mean, people were like, hey, Kane, how are you? Checking on him, making sure things were fine. And I feel very lucky. I think he got excellent care and he's thankfully home now and doing really well. Congratulations. How much did he weigh when he was born? He weighed two pounds, six ounces. And last week he was seven pounds. So he feels very heavy to me now, but growing, 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 which is what we want. I'm going to guess that they wheeled you in so that you could be next to him, near him, touch him. How did that go for those first couple days of his birth so you could bond with him? Yeah. Well, actually, my husband jokes that they did wheel me from labor (laughs) and delivery to the NICU. And then I went up to my postpartum room. And a few hours later, we went back down to see him. And we brought the wheelchair, but he basically pushed the wheelchair and I walked. And then I actually walked to my office to get my laptop because I left work in the middle of the day and told people I'd be back. She's Uh, driven. So I had to send some emails the next day. And he's like, at midnight, we're walking to my office. So I was there every single day. He was in the hospital for 74 days. And I came every single day. And it was very exhausting. And at the end, I was just like, are we done (laughs) yet? I want to bring my baby home. I want to bring him home. I want to not just have to have these couple hours with him. And I went back to work six weeks after and would still, you know, come and go in the middle of the day and see him. I'm thankful that I could do that, but I wish I had had a little bit of a break from the building that was my job for some of that time. Tell me what it was like then to bring him home. Oh, my gosh. So exciting. 
It was a little surreal. It was on the weekend. Some of the nurses that had been taking care of him the whole time weren't there. So it was a little bit sad, actually, too, because it's a little bit of a family that you form, especially after that long. But we were happy to get him home. And then we were like, what do we do now? (laughs) Just like every other parent. That's right. Well, that makes me feel better. If you felt like that, then I think that gives every mom listening to this interview a feeling of, okay, she felt like that, too. You are a huge supporter and a member of the board of the March of Dimes. Yes, This did not come by accident. Here you are, the mom of a preemie as well. Let's talk about your role and why you love the March of Dimes. It couldn't have come together any better. I became a member last year or early this year. And who would have known that I would really need all of their support as the year went on? But the March of Dimes, their work is in preventing prematurity. So, of course, I'm indebted to all of the things that they have done this year and these last few years. Their focus has been on disparities in healthcare, especially for black and brown mothers, like we discussed earlier. And that's, of course, a mission that's close to my heart. So I feel really proud to be on the board here and helping to make those changes and helping to collaborate with people like you to get the word out about what the March of Dimes does. Well, we are both huge supporters of the March of Dimes. How has motherhood changed you, Dallas? (laughs) I was always a planner and very organized, and babies don't always care so much about that. So as you can see, him coming into the world, you know, 13 weeks early, So I think, like most people say, I've probably become a little bit more patient. I'm still trying to get him on a schedule, which he does what he wants. And I'm more sleepy. I'll say that. (laughs) Are you a better doctor now that you have experienced this yourself? So I have a story about that. I think definitely I am. I think any OBGYN who's had a baby, any physician who's had any medicalization of their life can become a better doctor. But I was out for six weeks for my maternity leave, again, in the NICU every day. First day back, I'm seeing my baby, having lunch in the NICU, in sort of the patient room, having a conversation with another mom, and finishing my lunch and waiting for my medical student to come down to do a consult for a baby in the NICU. And I walk into the room and it's this mom and her baby. That's who the consult is for. This woman who I just had a 15 minute conversation with. And I walked in and the first thing I could say was, this must be very confusing for you because we were just having a conversation. Just as moms in the waiting room. Just as moms about pumping. And now I'm here to talk to you and your partner about your baby who may or may not have a genetic condition. And it was like totally a weird experience for me. But I actually think it was probably helpful for them to know that their doctor, you know, because I'm an oversharer, like my patients know everything about me. And so they, of course, knew I have a baby here, too. And I would see them on the weekends. I would see them when I was in there just, you know, eating my lunch or whatever. So I think that helped them a little bit to know that their doctor knows what they're going through. Losing a baby. Devastating for a mom, a dad, a family. Hard for the doctor as well. How do you deal with that? I think it's like the idealism that that I was talking about before where you start medical school and you think about what's all in front of you. When you get into it, you know, you start to see it's about helping people, but you start to see sort of the darker side of things, of life, right? And I have another story about that. When I started my third year of residency, I came on and there was a woman in room five who was 38 weeks pregnant, being induced, and her baby had the same thing my brother had, the same genetic condition. 
And she was counseled. She wasn't my patient before that. I had never met her. She was counseled that the baby may or may not survive the delivery. Or if the baby did, then the baby may or may not survive much longer after that. And it was like a whew. (laughs) I'm the senior resident in charge. I'm going to have to talk to this patient and interact with her. And through the course of her labor course, she delivered and the baby did not survive, which we all expected. I went to her the next day and I said, I just want you to know that my mom had a baby with the same thing that your baby had. And we bonded immediately because me and my sister were the same age as her two children. And it was, again, another place where I'm like, this reconfirmed for me that that's what I needed to do, to be there for moms like her from a perspective that not a lot of doctors can come from, right, being a a sibling of of somebody with a genetic condition. So it all kind of came full circle at that moment for me, like it has many times since. We we have just gotten some news about COVID-19 and pregnant women. Yes. Can you share some of that? It's new medical news. Yeah, it's something that we, I think, as OBGYNs had been talking about for a while with more of a tentative sort of tone. Earlier in the pandemic, when the vaccine came out, we were saying, we think it's a good idea. We think you should do it. And now it's very much like you need to do it. We know that pregnant women are getting sicker. We know that pregnant women are dying. We know that pregnant people are having C-sections in the ICU because that's what's needed to help their pulmonary status. And so I would have no hesitation. I got the vaccine when I was pregnant. I would have no hesitation in telling a pregnant person that they should get the vaccine. The next three questions we ask everyone who sits where you are today. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? One thought I always have, and this has come over time, at the time I was given this advice, and it really felt very not sincere, but everything happens for a reason, and everything works out the way it should. And I truly believe that because I have seen that happen in my own life. The path that I took to get to where I am now was not exactly the path I thought I would take, but I'm exactly in the place that I should be. Persevere. I mean, you have to not let it knock you on your butt. You got to get up and keep moving forward and you'll get through it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along today to our listeners? I think I would go with that first piece of information I said about having to get through obstacles, which is things will work out the way they should. So your job is not to try to fix it. Your job is to try to figure out what the blessing is in this. What is the upside of this? And go that direction. My husband and I were talking a lot about that when our baby was in the NICU and I said, there's some moms, friends that I have who have babies and they don't go to the NICU in their term and everything's fine. And everything about the experience for them is there's something negative to say about it. And I'm like, look at us. We could have so many negative things to say about what's happening with our baby. But I just keep thinking about the upsides. I was at work. This baby was delivered at my hospital where I work. These people know me and know him and are giving him the best care possible We can see him every single day. There was just so many ups to it. I think that was a really important thing for my mental health just to get through it. And I'm not necessarily like an optimist all the time. I think I'm more of a realist. But that really, really helped. Special question for you as a doctor. How do you want your patients to feel about their relationship with you? So I said before I'm an (laughs) oversharer. And I think probably the patients that connect with me the most are ones that we can just have a conversation. I think that 
you know, my philosophy about pregnancy, I, people get really tense and stressed out about pregnancy and come in. They're like, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do that? I'm like, just be a normal person. Like, that's my <laughs> you philosophy. You just happen to be carrying a baby in yes, your body. Yes. <laughs> just, I mean, there's a few restrictions, but like, you don't have to change and become a completely different person. Just be a normal person. And so I want my patients to come into my room and think that this is a comfortable place for me to be. I can ask whatever silly question I want to ask and know that they're going to get very practical advice. I'm not coming from this whole ivory tower place with my (laughs) advice. Final question. And I know that your answer will probably change in years to come because the way we see success does change. How do you define success right now at this moment in your life? Success for me would be feeling like I'm making a difference and feeling like I am doing what it was I set out to do when I was four, right? (laughs) Being able to sort of come home every day and say, I like my job. I like what I'm doing. I can connect with patients. I can connect with my colleagues. And if I won the lottery, I would still come back and do this. To me, that's success. Dr. Dallas Reed, I want to say thank you so much for being this week's guest on the story behind her success. Thank you so much. This was so fun. And that's the story behind her success for this week. I am always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you have someone in mind, would you let me know? Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. Give the show a follow on your favorite podcast platform. And please tell your friends and your family about the show. Leave a review if you would be so kind. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week when we share our stories no matter where we are in this big world. We provide a roadmap toward success. And when we lift each other up, we all rise.